Today our text is Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> Here's my question for you. What do you do when your rest becomes thwarted and your needs become unmanageable? What do you do when your rest becomes thwarted and your need becomes unmanageable? Well, today in our passage we're going to see the disciples are busy and tired and the crowd is needy and lost. And some way, shape, or form, I imagine we all fit uh, into that. And it's easy when you're busy and when you're tired to miss things. Particularly, it's easy to miss Jesus. And what we need when we're busy and tired, even though there may be a lot of things that we may pinpoint uh, as our need, the thing that we need most is eyes to see Jesus. Uh, some of you have glasses like me. Um, <clears throat> I didn't always have glasses. Uh, in fact, I don't think anyone always has glasses, but uh, you get the idea. I was in college when I got glasses. <clears throat> and I remember uh, my roommate and I, we had a lot of classes together, and we would sit in the back of class like any good student uh, would do. Um, and there in the back of class, one thing I discovered is that I hard, had a hard time reading the, the screen, like reading the notes. And so eventually, unbeknownst to me, my uh, friend got tired of me asking him, what was on the screen. Uh, he was like, man, you might need to get your eyes checked uh, because I could see just fine back here. Uh, if you can't, you might want to get that checked out. And so I remember going home um, on one of my breaks, first year of college, I went and got my eyes checked and sure enough, I needed glasses. And I remember when I got glasses, when I got, um, my, my roommate had a car and we, I didn't have a car as a first year of college, so I rode with him. We lived in uh, Arkansas, I was a hometown, went to school in Virginia, so 16, and a half hour road trip from home to college. And um, so we would get in the car and we would drive and he, for the most part, always drove and I was the, you know, the steady sidekick who slept half the way and the other half crit critiqued his driving, you know. So, um, but when I was awake, what amazed me and much to his annoyance is I pretty much read every street sign I could possibly read. It was like I had not seen any of these things before. Even though I had made this drive at least two or three other times, visiting college and coming to and from school. Now that I had glasses and I had eyes to see, it was like everywhere I looked, I could see things that I couldn't see before. It was amazing. And in a similar way, when we have eyes to see Jesus, it really does change everything. It changes how we see our busyness as well as how we see our, our tiredness. And what we're going to do today is we're going to see Jesus go on two boat rides. And in that journey, in in between those two boat rides, we're going to see four characteristics of Christ that I think are vital for us to know and to believe. The first thing I want us to see is his compassion. You heard read uh, the story of Jesus coming back, of the, the disciples, the apostles coming back from Jesus, sending them out on this short-term mission trip, if you will, to, to go into the cities ahead of him and to, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to, re to repent and believe uh, in the gospel. Uh, as Mark 1.15 tells us, they come back and Jesus' disciples are excited to report all that they had done. And it tells us that they came back, they reported all that they had done, and Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So before we jump in and we see Jesus' compassion here in this first section, uh, I want to just give a, a word uh, for for us to, to consider as we serve God. This isn't just true of somebody who is in vocational ministry. It's true of all of us as we think about serving God. Whether you serve in kids' ministry, you set up and tear down, you lead in worship, you teach and equip class or preach, 
uh, in a pulpit or you serve behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, no matter how you serve, Jesus has a word here for us that I think is important. I don't think it's the main point of the passage, but it's too important for us not to address. And in the Gospel of Luke, in a similar passage, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. Here he sends out the 12 and Luke 10, we'll see that he sends out a second group to do a similar thing. And when they come back, they're rejoicing over how they had authority over the demons and how they healed the sick. And in and, and Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus tells them, he says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It was like Jesus reminded them, don't just rejoice in all the stuff you've done for God. Rejoice first and foremost that you belong to me that you belong to God. And here we learn this valuable lesson. What fuels our ministry to others in whatever capacity you serve, it is not our natural talent or a learned skill, but it is being alone with God. What fuels our ministry is not the stuff that we produce, but it comes from being alone with God. Another way to say it is our work for God must never eclipse our time with God. I can't tell you how vital that is. No matter what capacity you serve, you will get burned out in church, whether it's wiping and changing diapers or helping little kids understand the gospel and telling them to listen up, show me your ears, or, or it's setting up and tearing down, or it's organizing and planning people to serve in various capacities, putting together mission trips, organizing ministries, planning and preparing music, whatever it is. You will become burnt out and overextended if your work for God eclipses your time with God. And Jesus repeatedly shows us this pattern of the importance of coming away and resting. In the King James Version, it says, come apart and rest. And there's an old pastor who said, if you don't come apart and rest, you'll come apart. And it's true. We often say here at TCC that ministry is sustainable sacrifice. If you serve, it will be sacrificial in some capacity. It will stretch us to faith, to trust God, and to use skills that we didn't know we had, or, or God to gift us in ways that we didn't uh, know we, we needed to be gifted. But it always must be a sustainable sacrifice that's rooted in our time with God. It's rooted in desire and devotion to God, not just ministry for God. So our work for God must never eclipse our time with God. But in many ways, this call to rest isn't the main point of the passage. It's actually just a backdrop for what's about to unfold. Remember I asked you, what do you do when your uh, rest gets thwarted? Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've uh, been doing some work and you sit down on the couch. It's a glorious feeling, isn't it? When you sit down on the couch, you know, and maybe you get to turn on a show. And <clears throat> inevitably, you sit down on the couch and somebody needs you to get up. Right? It's that moment I've heard parenting described as just getting up from the place in which you just sat down. Um, whether it's a parent or uh, just a, a friend or a roommate or something you forgot yourself. Maybe you get upset at your own self because you sat down before you got what you needed. Right? And when you get your rest gets thwarted, maybe it's minor, maybe it's major. But my default reaction, you guys may be saints, but my default reaction is annoyance and frustration when my rest gets thwarted. Well, here we're going to see that Jesus and the disciples' rest gets thwarted because we're told in verse 32 that as they went away to a desolate place by themselves, verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there ahead of them and all the towns to get there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, there was a great crowd. And, and it was there in that moment 
that Jesus was like, you people are ridiculous. Let me have some rest. That's not what he did, is it? No doubt it's a, a rebuke to our selfishness. But Jesus, when he looked at this crowd that had thwarted his rest and the disciples' rest, it says in verse 34 that he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. <clears throat> there are two things that are essential for us to see about Jesus here. The first thing is this, that our neediness is not met with annoyance, but with compassion. Our neediness is not met with annoyance, but compassion. This passage we'll also see at the end, we'll see Jesus' power once more reiterated, and, and honestly throughout uh, the whole here, the first half of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus' power uh, reiterated time and time again. But do you know that not only is Jesus' power emphasized in Mark, but also his compassion. You know that the word compassion, when it's used in the Gospel of Mark and, and many of the other Gospels, it's primarily, even exclusively used of Jesus. Jesus is the only one showing compassion. Obviously, in the rest of the New Testament, we see that we too are to show compassion. It's not that we're not capable of showing compassion. We're called to reflect Christ in this way. But the emphasis is on Christ showing compassion. And my hunch is that many of us, if, if we've been following Christ for some time, you, you believe and you know that God is powerful. But we sometimes struggle to believe and know that God is compassionate. We sometimes struggle to, to know and believe that God sees us and cares and acts when he sees his people in need. I was talking with my kids about compassion last night and we were using uh, some cards that we give out in our kids ministry that focus on the character of Christ and it defines compassion as God seeing, acting um, <clears throat> for his children when they are in need. He sees us, he knows, he acts when his children are in need and when Jesus comes face to face with our neediness, he is not put off like we are put off when other people's neediness encroaches upon our own desires. But instead, our neediness is met with compassion in which he sees and he responds to our need. We simply must understand the heart of God towards his people. Don't be fooled in thinking that God is only powerful. Know that God cares and seeks to act on your behalf if you're a child of his. Our neediness isn't met with annoyance, but it's met with compassion but here Jesus shows us his compassion is tied to, to something else that's true of him. He's compassionate on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And this language is, is familiar throughout the Old Testament. It's speaking something really important. It's showing us that Jesus is the promised shepherd who will deliver and provide for his people. Now, I want you to hang on with me because I'm going to point to some Old Testament passages because I think what Mark is doing here and what Jesus is seeking to demonstrate is to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning how God would send a shepherd king to deliver and to lead his people. You, you can't read the story of Jesus feeding 5,000, which is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's, it's one of the most significant miracles in, in all of the Gospels, recorded in all of them, and not think about Moses. Because the last time that God's people were gathered on the mountain plains and were in need and probably were grumbling, we know they were grumbling a little bit, uh, 
and God provided miraculously for them to eat was through the hand of Moses in Exodus 16. It was through the hand of Moses that God fed his people, and it was by the hand of Moses that God led his flock, Psalm 77, verse 22 says, through the waters and, and delivered them from bondage in Egypt. In fact, in John chapter 6, when this story is, is relayed by, by the Apostle John, he tells us that after Jesus finished feeding the 5,000, the people said, this is the prophet to come, which was a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, which says that God was going to raise up a prophet like Moses one day. Jesus is better than Moses. He, he's a better shepherd. You know, God called Moses from being a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, to, which is a great name, uh, his father-in-law Jethro. He was a shepherd for him for 40 years, and he calls them out of being a shepherd to shepherd and lead the people of God. He's better than Moses, but he's also better than Joshua. And in Numbers 27, if you want to flip over there, uh, just kind of mark this in your notes, Numbers 27, verse 17 Listen to what Moses says uh, to God, almost as, a, as really as a request and a prayer to God, the way he describes his desire for a leader for the people of Israel. In Numbers 27, a new Bible, and uh, you can open it up eventually. Here we go. Numbers 27. <clears throat> Moses <clears throat> uh, is here uh, kind of setting up how Joshua is going to succeed and follow after Moses and leading the people of Israel. Moses says this to the Lord in Numbers 27, verse 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation of Israel, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord might not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord appointed Joshua to lead the people so that they would be not like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is not only better than Moses, but he's better than Joshua. And this language of a shepherd for the sheep is, is perhaps most explicit in, in Ezekiel, uh, which is one of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament. If you flip over to Ezekiel chapter 34, I want you to see this picture that God gives us of a shepherd for the people of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 34 says this, Ezekiel 34 is both an indictment to the leaders of Israel and a promise of the one leader that God is going to give Israel. It says this in Exodus 34, 10 through 16. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds. He's speaking of the leaders of Israel, the priests and the, the, the past kings of Israel. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherd feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Israel, from the time of exile all the way to the time of Jesus, has suffered from the people who were called to lead Israel, being unfaithful to God and to the scriptures, to lead God's people to obedience to God's word and to walking in his ways. And, and so Jesus is here, just, just like Ezekiel is in, in chapter 34, indicting the very leaders of Israel. Because they are all like sheep without a shepherd. They have no leader. They have been left uh, to fend for themselves. And they've even been preyed upon by the leaders of Israel. Taken advantage 
Uh, it's, it's why you see when Jesus goes in the temple and he turns over the money tables because people are just taking advantage of the people and how worship was to take place. It was all lost in the selfishness and the idolatry of the human heart. And Jesus is here indicting, no doubt, uh, the leaders of Israel. But more than indicting the leaders of Israel, he's making a promise concerning the kind of leader he is. Because he says in, in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, that, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. On a day of cloud and thick darkness, skip down to verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And Ezekiel uh, 34, verses 23 through 24, ended this way. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. What, what, what Ezekiel says of David was true, but it was only a shadow. What was true of David is fulfilled in an even greater way in Jesus Jesus is the true and better shepherd, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than David. We're going to see that he provides just like Moses. We're going to see that he leads the people out of bondage and into the promised land like Joshua. We're going to see he is the one true king who graciously and mercifully rules over God's people. If you want to go home and read Psalm 78, I would encourage you to do so because it accounts for how God showed compassion time and time again for his people. But it ends this way in verse 70 through 72. It says that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, just like he did Moses, from following the nursing ewes, and he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them. All of, all of what Mark 6 is saying should be sending off ringing bells to the people of Israel as they see what Jesus does here, and they see his heart and his provision for the people, and they say, this must be the one. This must be one like Moses. This must be one like Joshua, one like David. He's the promised shepherd, greater than the shadows of the past. He's come to lead his people in a new exodus. Just like Moses led Israel out of bondage in Egypt and through the Red Sea, we're going to see that Jesus is leading his people on a new exodus out of bondage to sin and death, and he will lead them and provide for them. And not only lead them, but we see his provision following here the statement concerning him being shepherd. The second thing I want us to see is his provision. Here we have a, a picture of the compassionate shepherd in verse 34. But it's interesting, in verse 34, before we move on to verse 35, when Jesus says he sees the people and he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd, our natural instinct as we see that is to, to think about what a shepherd would do next, right? A shepherd who sees the needy sheep, what does he do? Does he feed the sheep? Not yet. He's going to. Does he heal the sick and wounded sheep? Not yet, but he will. What's the first thing he does? It's kind, of, it's kind of surprising to me. It says he sees them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he taught them. 
So he taught them many things, it says at the end of verse 34. Now, <clears throat> this is why it's helpful in comparing the, the various Gospels as they account the story. John chapter 6 tells us that the following day, Jesus was talking to some of the religious leaders, and they had seen his miraculous work of feeding the 5,000 and heard about it, and they asked him to show a sign. And if you were to flip over there to John chapter 6, they, they asked Jesus to show a sign. And I can't help but think that what Jesus says in, in John 6 the next day was similar to what he must have taught that day. In John chapter 6, verse 29, it says the people demanded a sign. <clears throat> Um, and they say, show us, uh, you know, the, the sign, the work of God through you. And Jesus said this to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And they, so they said, so, okay, so what sign do you show us that we may see and believe? What work would you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We want this bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who feasts on me will never hunger again. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He says all that the Father gives to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but of him who sent me. And then verse 40 says this, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes will have eternal life. You see, when Jesus taught the people, he provided for their greatest need. I, I know that the people inevitably had many needs, and we're going to see how Jesus met them. But on the authority of God's word, I can tell it all of us here today, that our greatest need, no matter what other needs we have, not diminishing the other needs that we have, our greatest need is to see and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing in his name, have eternal life. If you believe that, then you really understand your greatest problem. You really understand your greatest need. It's for us to be made right with God, for us to be reconciled with God. And you may think to yourself, everyone liked Jesus. Everyone enjoyed hearing him, and great crowds followed him. John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69, after Jesus teaches, basically he explains that what he's saying, when he says he's the true bread that comes down from heaven, he's saying that my body is going to be broken, I'm going to die on the cross, my blood is going to be shed, and it's through my death on the cross that forgiveness of sins will come. And the people who had been following him leave because it was a hard teaching, it says. Now, I admit, Jesus was like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and that was a little weird. Um, that's what he said. But he explained what he meant by saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus isn't into cannibalism, right? Like, just be 100% clear for all of us here today. Not into cannibalism. No good. But what Jesus was talking about, to feast on him is to believe in him. To be fed by him is to believe in him. And that people heard it and they thought, this is a hard message. And Jesus looked to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter spoke up and they said, where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. When you think about your greatest need, 
and you think about God's great provision, do you see it being your sin and God giving his life for your sin as the answer? Because if you do, then you, you, you're on to, to recognizing your greatest need and God's greatest provision for you. And when we have our greatest need met and we recognize God's abundant provision for us, we can trust him with everything else. Because we go on to see that he's first, before he did anything else, spoke to their spiritual need, spoke to their need for forgiveness and understanding the kingdom of God and repentance and faith. But then he goes on and he looks at the crowd and he sees that they're in need and it says he decided to feed them. It goes in a, in, in somewhat of an interesting way as it unfolds in verses 35, uh, carrying on. I want us to see as we walk through it, I want us to see three lessons concerning God's provision here tucked into this passage. We, we see that <clears throat> the time grew late and the disciples came to him and they said, look, Lord, this is a desolate place. The hour's late. Send the people away so they can go get something to eat. And Jesus said, you feed them. And they're like, what? we don't got enough. We can't feed these people, Right? And they say to Jesus, you're crazy. We could work for a year and we wouldn't have enough money to feed these people. Hmm. The first thing we see is that our capacity is not a limit to God's provision. Jesus called them to do something that he knew full well they could not do. I was challenged this week in thinking about this. Sometimes we think to ourselves that <clears throat> if God asks us to do something, we must be capable of doing it. But this passage teaches that that's not true. They were not capable of feeding all the people. And yet Jesus unequivocally said to them, you feed them. The point is that our inability, our limits, our, our capacity is not a limit to his provision. When God calls us to something beyond our capacity, the proper response is to trust him. But here's what happens. A lot of times in our life, when we think about God's provision, we limit God by thinking he can only do through us what we feel capable enough to do. We think if we can do it, then God can do it through us. But it's the, actually the wrong way around. The question is, what does God intend to do, and am I willing to trust him to do it through me? And that's exactly what the disciples are faced with. As God calls them to feed the people, is to recognize that their capacity isn't a limit to God's provision. It's the same that's true in your way. You may feel like, God, it's beyond me to obey you in this area. I feel at a loss. But you're in a great place, friend. Because your inability does not limit God's ability. That's the very theater of God demonstrating his provision for you. But we also see that a little bit becomes a lot in the hands of Jesus because Jesus says to them when they're overwhelmed by the reality of what he's asked them to do, he said, well, go and see what you have. And so they go and they find and they come back and they report, we've got five, five loaves and two fish. This is basically a Lunchable, right? Um, we've got a Lunchable, Jesus. What do you want us to do with the Lunchable? And Jesus directs them. At first he takes, it says, um, and directs them to sit down in the grass in groups of 150. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven, said a blessing, broke it, and he gave it to the disciples to set before the people. There's this song I love. It's by an artist named Shy Lin. The album is called Jesus Kids. And the song, Jesus Kid, uh, is actually the foundation of what started our Jesus Kids Club. Some of our kids are a part of that, and some of you are familiar with it. 
third through sixth grade uh, after school uh, outreach uh, club where we teach kids about Jesus, what it means to know and love him and share the gospel. And um, in that in that song, uh, it unpacks uh, what it means to be a Jesus kid, how Jesus welcomed the little children to come to him. And he calls us to childlike faith. And um, Shai Lynn uh, re recounts how in John it tells us that it was a little boy in the crowd who had the, the loaves and the fish. Uh, and, and he accounts, uh, he recounts it this way. He says, well, now it was the end of a very long day, and the disciples said, Lord, please send these people away. They need a place to stay, plus they haven't eaten. And Jesus looked them in the eyes and said, you feed them then. They looked at Jesus, and then they looked at the crowd again, and they said, uh, Lord, there's 5,000 men. We could work for six or seven months, and that still won't equal enough to give a little bit to all of these people. And just then a boy came forward, and you know what he said? He said, I got a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. So Jesus took it, and though it wasn't a whole bunch, he fed 5,000 men with the little boy's lunch. Everybody ate, and they had food to spare, all because the little boy wasn't too rude to share. So kids, trust in Jesus. That's what you should do. If you give him what you have, he can use you too. A little bit in the hands of God becomes a lot. It wasn't that it was an impressive amount, but it was entrusted to Jesus to use as he decided. When you give him what you have, he will use it beyond what you can imagine. I have no promise as to grandiose uh, expectations and outcomes on the other side. That's what we all are looking for, some grand expectation of how God's going to provide. God's provision may look uh, different in all of our lives. It may come out in different ways. But I do know that the disciples took what little they had from this little boy, and they brought it to Jesus in the hands of Jesus. Jesus multiplied a little and made it a lot. That is the very essence of what it means to trust his provision, to take what we have and trust him for it. Some of you think that what you have isn't significant. Some of what you have isn't enough. Maybe your life isn't what you want it to look like. Maybe your provision in your life isn't what you look like. Your salary, uh, your house, your car, your, your life as it's laid out may not be what, it, what you want it to look like. Or you may fear constantly what it's supposed to look like. Maybe the, the thought of change in the future terrifies you. Take what you have and put it in the hands of Jesus and watch him provide for you. But then there's this third thing. We're told that Jesus took the bread and he gave it to the disciples. He took it, he blessed it, prayed for it, and he gave it to the disciples to set before the people. That's verse 41. Then verse 42 says, and they all ate and were satisfied. Here's my question. How did it happen? What did it look like? On part, we don't know, right? The Bible doesn't tell us. But here, here's what I can't help but think. Jesus gave it to the disciples to set before the people. They gave it to them. In order for God to provide, it came about, his provision came about as they acted by faith. Sometimes we sit with our hands behind our back and we're like, all right, God, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. You line it all up and then I'm getting, I'm good to go. So we, we stand like this, saying, God, all right, I'm ready. But God says, stand like this and watch me work through you. God provides as we act by faith. There's no other way to explain it. It was a true miracle. Just like Jesus turned a bunch of pots of water into wine at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2, he takes this little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and he multiplies it to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. 
The point in all of it is don't trust your capacity. Trust Jesus' sufficiency. Don't trust your capacity. Trust Jesus' sufficiency. He shows us his provision, but he goes on, and, and I contemplated whether or not to include this uh, in today's message, but it, it's tied together because in verse 52, 45 through 52, Jesus, after he walks on the water here in a moment, which we'll see, it says that the disciples did not understand about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Jesus is tying together their failure to understand what he did in the feeding of the 5,000 with their failure to understand what he was doing in the walking on water. And it's this... This third thing that I want us to see is his glory. Verse 45 transitions us from the feeding of the 5,000 to the, this is the second boat ride, right? I said we're going on two boat rides, four characteristics. Here's our second boat ride. Uh, they go on the boat ride, and uh, Jesus sends them back, and he goes alone to be with the Father. Now, it's interesting. Mark records three times that Jesus goes alone to pray. And all three times, Jesus goes alone to pray, and each time he's removed from his disciples, and his disciples are failing to understand his mission. It happens at the beginning in Mark chapter 1, here in Mark chapter 6, and then again in Mark chapter 14. And what unfolds here is that there's often, uh, in those moments where Jesus goes away, it's kind of a formative uh, decision or crisis moment. And, and what's interesting about Mark 6 is sometimes because of like the flannel boards from uh, from you know Sunday school back in the day, if you did that sort of thing, we kind of envision Jesus feeding the five thousand with this like idyllic uh, scenery, you know, like on the mountainside as the lambs you know frolicked in the distance and the people were gathered and Jesus was there teaching and it was a beautiful thing, right? But in fact, most likely it was somewhat of a tense moment. Here's five thousand men is the emphasis on these five thousand men that are there. Most likely. There was some anticipation that now was the time to act. John actually tells us, John chapter 6, that after Jesus fed the 5,000, he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he retreated. Remember how Jesus continually tells people not to, not to share what he had done? Because he didn't want them to misunderstand. He wasn't going to come and be a conquering warrior and defeat the Romans. He was come to be a suffering servant. Mark 10, 44 through 45. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. That's who Jesus is. So Jesus says, don't get it confused. I'm not coming to, to defeat the Romans. I'm coming to lay down my life on a Roman cross. And so there's probably some tense uh, things going on in the crowd. And so Jesus sends his disciples away and, and he's going to show that his glory will not come through the, the conquering warrior that many were expecting. His glory will come through ultimately the cross and the resurrection. It says that he goes up to pray. And as he's praying, it says he sees his disciples, which no doubt had to have been a miraculous sight to see them out on the water going back across. And it doesn't say that it was a, necessarily a big storm, but it says that they were struggling uh, to go across. This is the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And they're struggling to row across the sea. And, and we see his glory in a few different ways. One, he walks on water. All right? So... There's no other way to explain this, but the only people who walk on water are people like God, right? And in fact, the Bible tells us, Psalm 77, 19 through 20, that God himself is the one who treads on waters and leaves no footprints. And Job chapter 9, it says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea? In verse 10, 
who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes me by and I see him not. He moves on and I do not perceive him. Well, what, what Mark is showing here, what Jesus is revealing, is that the transcendent God that Job and the psalmist speaks of is revealed in Jesus Christ as he walks on water. Jesus walks on water because he's revealing his glory as God himself. But here's this interesting thing. It says that he intended to pass them by, verse 48. What does that mean? What does it mean that he intended to pass them by? I've always been like... Was Jesus like, hey, look at me, you know, I'm walking down the water, you know? Like, that's not, Jesus isn't showing off, right? He's not trying to show them that, that he's just got skills, like walking on water, you know? Uh, he's trying to do something more, and in fact, it's, a, it's this language of passing by that takes us back to Exodus. Some of you have been walking through, uh, walked through our Exodus Bible study. I hope some of these things sound familiar to you, but in Exodus 33, when uh, after the, the idol and the Ten Commandments are smashed and Moses pleads with God to go with them, and he says, God, if your presence isn't with us, how will anyone know that we're your people? And in order to confirm God's presence will be with him, Moses says, Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory, God. And it says that God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy unto whom I will show mercy. He said, but you can't see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's this place, I'm going to tuck you into the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you, and then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. It was the glory of God that passed by Moses to assure Moses of God's presence with Israel as they went out of Egypt and into the promised land. Here, I think what Jesus is doing is not showing off, is not merely demonstrating some power to test his disciples, but he's revealing his glory. Moses desired to see the glory of God, to be assured of the presence of God. Here, Jesus reveals his glory to show his disciples that he is God in their presence. And the disciples are terrified. And, and Jesus, once more, showing that him walking on water is really us understanding who he is because he says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Here's what I want you to understand. It is I equals I am. It's the same statement that God makes of himself in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Jesus does this repeatedly, we see in the Gospel of John. But it's here, Jesus revealing himself to be the very God who brought Israel out of Egypt he is, he is God in the flesh. When, when Moses asked God, what is your name? Who should I tell them has sent me to deliver them? God said to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am has sent me for you. Jesus shows up and says, do not be, be afraid. I am. He intended to reveal his glory. I love how one commentator said it. The one who calmed the storm is the one who now appears in the storm. The I am of God. God shows up in the storm, and he reveals his glory. And I love that it says that the disciples are amazed, and yet they're hardened in their hearts, and they don't fully believe. And it's instructive because a lot of times when we see and experience God, it's, it's easy for us both to believe and then yet struggle to believe. They had just seen God do miraculous things like feeding the 5,000, and now they see him walk on water, and they're terrified. It's a reminder, when we see God's glory, a lot of times we're not dancing around afterwards. We're often terrified to see and experience the glory of God. 
And, and they're terrified and they struggle to believe. Their hearts are hard, not in that they never will believe, but that we get this picture of the difficulty of believing, that, that we're a mixture of belief and unbelief. And I think the point for the disciples is the point for us, whether we're busy, tired, overwhelmed, overworked, underpaid, however it gets played out, wherever we find ourselves, what the disciples needed and what we needed is eyes to see Jesus. They needed to see his glory. And to see his glory was to be assured of his presence with them. That was the key. Like Moses, we should ask God, let me see your glory. Like the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, we ought to pray when we open his word, God, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law. We ought to pray like Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18. God, open the eyes of my heart that I might know what is the, the riches of the inheritance that I have in you. That I might know what is the hope that I have in you. That I might know your power towards me who believes through Christ who was raised from the dead. God, give me eyes to see your glory so that I might be assured of your presence. And if I'm assured of your presence, I know, you're full, God. I know you'll provide. I'll know that you're with me. We need to see his glory. And then finally, I want to conclude by, I want us to see his power. I'm going to ask Amber and Victor to come back up and close us in, in worship. But verses 53 through 56 is just a summary in many ways. It's a familiar summary. It says, as they cross back over the land and they get to Gennesaret and they moor to the shore, they got out and what did they find? They found more people. Right? The people ran and flocked to them again. And it says that they brought their sick to them wherever they were. And they, they came to him from the villages, the city, the countryside. That The picture is somewhat overwhelming of what Jesus describes and what Mark describes here. And it says, wherever they came from, whatever sickness they had, they found Jesus. And if they found Jesus, if they could just touch the fringe of his garment, they were made well. Doesn't say anything about Jesus' teaching, doesn't say anything about what Jesus did, but it's just this summary reminder. He's shown his power in all of these ways, and once more here, he shows his power in healing the sick. But here's the thing that I, uh, I, I can't get away from as I look at this passage. It, there's not so much an emphasis on faith here. There's really, the only emphasis is on Jesus and his power. And it's Jesus' power demonstrated against the backdrop of a pretty overwhelming picture of all kinds of sickness from all kinds of places coming to Jesus. And here's the point. What seems overwhelming to us is not overwhelming to God. The, the people came, their needs that they brought to Jesus were overwhelming, but Jesus' power was greater. We need to see that we can come to him who is full of compassion. We need to come to him who is rich in provision. We need to come to him who is glorious beyond what we can imagine and yet is close enough to get into our very boat. That's the kind of God Jesus is. And whose power is available to all who will reach out to him. He's not depleted by our weakness. He's not depleted by our neediness. He's not depleted by our sickness. In fact, his glory is revealed in that he strengthens the weak, he heals the sick, and he meets the need of the needy. That's Jesus. And look, look, if you see that Jesus is these things, if you see that he's compassionate, if you see that he's provider, if you see that he's glorious, if you see that he's powerful, how can you not say to him, my life is yours? 
Like, strip away all the other stuff. Like, it's yours, God. There's so many needs I have. I'm overwhelmed by this or that. And, and God, I'm imploring you to help me. Help me in my school. Help me in my marriage. Help me in my work. Help me with the decision. But God, everything's yours. My life is yours. And if you've yet to trust Christ, how can you not want to give your life to him who laid down his life for you, who meets your needs not with annoyance but with compassion, who provides for you what you need and more? who's glorious and yet near, who's powerful and able to heal and to save all those who reach out to him. See your need and to see his provision. And when we, when we see this, just think about the implications of our life. When we see Jesus, in light of Jesus, the cheap thrills of lust, the temporary satisfaction of selfishness, the momentary burst of anger, and frustration that we let out, the, the, the promise, the empty promises of pleasure and self-actualization in this world, all of that pales into comparison to seeing Jesus for who he is. Do you see him? And if you see him, do you believe? That's the question the Gospel of Mark puts to us time and time again. Do you see Jesus for who he is, and do you trust him? I pray today that we will.